Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. Hey, Pam, can you throw in a quick PSA here so I can grab this? Our first guest is calling on my cell phone and not the station. Energy efficiency interviews are brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. Matthew, you know energy-saving light bulbs last six times longer than that old bulb in your lamp. Uh, yeah, well, I don't even live here. Matthew, dinner's ready. I never met that woman. It's your favorite, Matt. Lasagna. Uh, don't you people knock? Just give me the energy saver. Millions of kids are using their energy wisely. What's your excuse? Learn more at LoseYourExcuse.gov. Yes, the joys of live broadcasting, people. Uh, <laughs> yes, our first guest, for whatever reason, was calling on my cell phone and not our studio line. So that confusion is now resolved, and we're going to get to him in just a minute. But hey... You are listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, producers, writers, directors, actors, cinematographers, production designers, uh, costume designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, choreographers, makeup artists. Um, if they're out there, we'll talk to them. And we do, right here on Behind the Lens. Or if you're looking for us on social media, on, on Twitter, it's BTL Radio Show. Uh, on Facebook, it's Behind the Lens. Uh, or me. You know, you can find me on Twitter at Movie Shark D. Uh, or on Facebook, Debbie Lynn Elias. But very excited about today's show. We've got two live guests today. The first one who I'm going to bring on momentarily is Igor... Uh, and I know I'm going to screw up his name, his last name, Drill Jaka. Uh, he is the writer and director of The White Fortress. It was the Oscar selection for Bosnia-Herzegovina this past year. Um, it's a coming-of-age story uh, set in Sarajevo, uh, and it really encompasses the war-torn history of the land and the political corruption, and it does it through the lens of these two young people, Farouk and Mona, from different sides of the track, uh, track, so to speak. Uh, it is a quiet rumination. Um, there's a lot of metaphor, beautiful cinematography, and some exquisite uh, piano composition. Uh, so we're going to have Igor with us in a moment. And then at the midpoint of the show, Dan Mervish is back. Um, this time he's back with his new film, 18 and a Half, which opens later this week. Um, and it's a doozy. 18 and a Half. Think Nixon. Think Watergate. Think that missing tape. And then go beyond that with a fantasy idea for a killer, dark, comedic thriller. I'm in love with this film, 18 and a Half. So we'll have Dan on to talk to, with him about that. Uh, later in the show, but right now, let me welcome Igor to the show. Hello, Igor. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled. And so, how is it in beautiful, sunny Hawaii today? Uh, yeah, we're in Maui. It's uh, <laughs> it's early. 
<laughs> it's really pretty, actually. Yeah, I know. Karen had emailed me and said, oh, yeah, lucky Igor, he's in Maui. I said, but Karen, it's 8 o'clock in the morning there when he calls in for the show. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We we get we get up pretty early here because we're still having switched the clock yet. Well, I have to tell you, the White Fortress. What a beautiful film! It is. Thank you. It's a beautiful coming of age story. You have so much metaphor in here, and you really use that metaphor and the history of the region, the war torn history, the political corruption. It all comes into play here as we watch Farouk and Mona gravitate towards each other as each is looking for something else. And you really bring that whole what Eastern European idea of fairy tale. Fairy tales, because most people seem to forget fairy tales really started kind of as horror almost. With so many of them. And you really, yeah. you walk that line here so beautifully. Um, I was spellbound watching this, Igor. Spellbound. Yeah, I mean, when, when I set off to make the film, um, the, the idea of like a happily ever after to me was always uh, sort of like a, was something I was always interested in, 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 Kind of deconstructing, as you, uh, if I could say that. Yeah. Um, particularly in the case of that country, where it's like one sort of set of issues after another, and um, as the as the youth there have been sort of leaving in mass to kind of uh, immigrate elsewhere, because the country is sort of in many ways, even though there was a peace treaty, it hasn't really been good for most people. Um, it, 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 it's a it, it's a very kind of stagnant place, and uh, you know, young people who used to belong to the middle class are like their families are becoming increasingly poor, and then there's this kind of new elite that's kind of been brought up. And the idea of using a fairy tale to kind of construct a narrative around that was something that was quite appealing, um, in part. And you could kind of you, you can negotiate and kind of navigate these. Uh, different class spaces uh, that, that are fairly recent. You didn't have classism to this extreme uh, during the socialist period of that country. And, um, and and fairy tales, even in the region themselves, they, they, they were, they're, they're like rarely ever uh, sort of positive in, in ways. They're like kind of a way to kind of get children to uh, pay attention to their elders, right? Or like kind of like, uh, a, a way to instill some level of kind of um, uh, like a like a like a like a lesson, some kind of something that they could uh, take away from. Um, it's only kind of this more recent hundred or so years of sort of businessification of fairy tales that they kind of have a happily ever after, even though they're not really. Mm-hmm. Most of them are not happy. Right. I mean, I, I remember fairy tales that my grandmother would tell me uh, from Germany. She Both my grandparents grew up in Germany. Um, and none of them had happy endings. I... <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yes, Dis- Disney-fica- Disneyfication has, uh, 
uh, took hold of these this lore and these fairy tales. You know, what was when, how long did it take you to craft this script? Because, and I have to let everybody know if they haven't seen the White Fortress. They need to see it. It's available now. It it came out April 22nd. Um, there are subtitles, but your imagery and your performances are so strong, Igor. You don't need to read the subtitles to understand what is happening. And that is always the key of a well-told story. When you don't need those subtitles. And I have to tell you, with the White Fortress, you don't need to read them to understand what's happening. Thanks to your imagery, your cinematography is gorgeous. And, of course, your performances um, by Pavla and Sumeja are just outstanding. So how did you, you got this idea to tell this story. How, what was your process of constructing it? Were you thinking of your visuals as you were writing did you have any cast in mind? What was this process like for you? Well, when I was when I set out to write it, the first few drafts were done many, many years prior to that. It was like a project that that kind of was shelved for a while because of financing issues. It was really hard to make a film uh, in Bosnia and combine sort of Canadian funding. And, it, like there's a political component there that's like too complex to get into in terms of how funding there works mm-hmm. um, based on like identity and ethnic keys and all this stuff. But eventually Canada joined your homage and then you were able to make a much easier co-production between Bosnia and Canada. So that's what happened. Um, and in the meantime, like I kind of forgot about that script. It was, <laughs> it was sort of shelved for about two, three years. And I just looked at it again and, and I, and I wanted to, do something updated somehow, right? And uh, it, it, with this update, I had in mind an actor I had seen not that long ago uh, in another film called uh, No One's Child, and then another film he was in called The Load, uh, Pavlet Cemerkic. He's like a local, well, not, he's not from Bosnia, but he's from, from, from Serbia. So they speak the same language, the Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia. It's still the same language uh, being spoken in, 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 the, in those countries. So you, I was I was kind of hoping he would say yes, but in my mind I always kind of wrote it for this particular actor. Mm-hmm. So I kind of pictured it as being him. And uh, when the script was ready, I shared it with him and uh, my pre- previous work, and he agreed to do it. And that's sort of how that came into being. And then for the other roles, especially for the younger roles, they were all actors we found throughout through an open call. So that that was the more kind of difficult, much more prolonged process. Took about um, took almost two months to kind of finalize all the actors wow. uh, through this open call. Um, the pro- we, the process began many months before that, and some of the other strategies we had used weren't really working. So that's why we eventually went with an open call. Um, so yeah, the casting took a while, especially for the Samaya character, uh, and eventually the the few. Uh, uh, sort of finalist did it with chemistry reads with Pavla, and that's how we determined which 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 actor to go with. And uh, she had never been in anything before, so she was just completely new. Oh wow! Uh, to the field. Wow! And I think that works to your advantage here because as Mona, 
I mean, Sumedja brings this wide-eyed kind of innocence where she's unfamiliar with the world. She's been living in a world that really has been cloistered. She has been in her own fortress, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and ne- as, as the character Farouk has been in his own, and never shall the twain meet. And here they do, so it's an eye-opening experience. And I think that Sumedja's inexperience as an actor, I think that really worked to your advantage because you get that wide-eyed curiosity and innocence. Um, and it's so endearing. And as we see this relationship develop between Farouk and Mona, this is where your cinematography comes into play, Igor. Oh, my God. Errol, uh, Errol Zub, uh, Zubchevich? Zubchevich. Lubsterbeck, okay. Errol Zubchevich, yeah. His cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. Um, as we get into the third act, as we're, we're you know, our, our two young lovers, very Romeo and Juliet, they may be torn apart. And fantasy starts taking hold. And the cinematography, uh, at, the, at the hour 14 mark, I was just, my jaw dropped to the floor. I have to tell you, you go from sunset to moonrise to sunrise. It is some of the most stunning imagery I've seen. Um, just gorgeous with the pinks of the setting sun and the gold, you know, the big fiery ball as it drops below a mountain. And it really mirrors the relationship of Farouk and Mona. Just stunning work. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll let him know. Thank you. You know how? You know how did the two of you develop the visual grammar um, for the cinematography in terms of what you were looking for? Because you seem, well, you know, you use a lot of wide shots with, with Farouk and a lot of his quote unquote friends slash associates, um, but then you also move in for close ups. Um, for contemplation, reflection, especially with Farouk, and then Farouk and Mona together. So I'm curious how the two of you developed um, this visual tonal bandwidth. Um, we, 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 we did collaborate before, so this is not our first collaboration. So we kind of knew how to talk to each other um, in, 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 like, in ways that were, I guess, uh, shorthand. So, like, we, I don't have to explain everything about it. There was a <laughs> film I made called Woman in Purple that was sort of a per- precursor to this world. It was very different because this film is still tied. It's tied to the real, but it also has this kind of, like, dreamlike or magical realism kind of quality to it as well. So you, I wanted to do something that's a bit atypical for the region in terms of, like, how they embrace some of these cinematography conventions. So the kind of references we would have were both sort of uh, a lot of local sort of Romanian New Wave stuff, uh, uh, Taiwanese cinema, uh, American cinema, like David Fincher, for example, was, mm-hmm. was, was another reference that would come up. So like, there would be a lot of different kind of filmmaking that was being referenced. And then we just kind of created uh, a language uh, that kind of suited the story. So this kind of a mystery thriller uh, coming of age kind of uh, 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 grounding that we needed for the film, and and 
those are the, those are the kind of things that we we explored visually. Um, whether it be, you know, how, how do we use or how do we light the dog? Because the dog has has an element that's tied to the dream space, but it's also tied to the real space. How do we approach, um, you know, light itself? Like, do we kind of like allowing allowing natural light to do a lot of the the shaping around some of the key moments? Mm. Uh, so we we thought about using uh, dusk and dawn and the light in in uh, around that period of time uh, to kind of uh, create some of the some of the key scenes, pivotal scenes in the film. Um, and it, it 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 was you know it was a it was a film that takes place during sort of like this um, uh, this sort of election that's happening in, in the in the city. So you know how do we balance the sounds with the visuals? How do we we don't have much of a money, so how do how do we create these <laughs> textures uh, that are not necessarily visual but hint at it visually? So so those are the kinds of conversations that we were having throughout the uh, throughout the sort of the uh, pre-production process, and then when we kind of had a final idea of what kind of resources we would have, uh, you know, we we really tried to uh, use these particular lens, these hawks, these anamorphic hawks. Um, these kind of vintage quality, like this kind of imperfect glass that uh, that that kind of allowed us to uh, play around with some of these um, um, uh, these textures that wouldn't necessarily be there if we if we if we shot a very clean, the cleaner lens. Mm-hmm. So there was like an anamorphic quality to to the entire uh, to the entire film as well. So those are the kinds of things that would happen in the in the in the lead up to it. And then everything else from like the skin tones of the actors and what kind of color palettes would work. Our our um, our costume designer did an amazing job as well of like just kind of situating these young people in their particular environments and and kind of working with existing kind of uh, uh, trends in the, at the time. Um, so it was it was like a, a, a complete effort of you know, getting everybody on the same page as to, like, what we were trying to do. And because there wasn't an easy reference in the region for, like, a film like this, Mm -hmm. we kind of used a lot of references. Well, I have to say, you you mentioned several times a key word here that I wrote down in my notes as I watched the film, texture. There is such a visual texture that translates into an emotional texture. Um, that makes it very palpable, very tangible. Um, you really get the sense with the locations that you chose and through Errol's lensing, you really get the sense of history, of the the discord, of the, uh, you know, the differences that now exist, the socioeconomic differences. Um, and... It's, I found that really striking. You feel the history. You feel, war, you know, worn out by war, worn out by the past that is now permeating into the future. And that really comes through so beautifully with the visuals, with the angles that you're using, and with that anamorphic um you know, veneer that we have. It's really wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, Igor. 
Thank you. You know, a, a big part here, and anybody that watches this film is going to notice this right away, is the score and the use of piano. And I love the compositions, the music compositions. I love the piano um, instrumentation. And that directly ties into Farouk's story of lives with his grandmother. His mother, who is deceased, was a former concert pianist. So you carry this through into, you know, with your composer into the music, but also right down to the instrumentation, which adds another layer. And I have to say the piano compositions are exquisite, exquisite. Thank you. Yeah, so there was an attempt to kind of use the Clara Schumann piece that the mom, the deceased mom, is playing, and kind of work off that with Casey to construct something that's almost like, you know, these kind of the piano that's coming from from another world, right? Like this kind of deceased, mm-hmm. the world of ghosts, so to speak. And um, that was kind of the thing that we tried to play around with because music is such a pivotal thing in his life, and you know, there's this in this kind of you know, uh, lower middle class home that used to kind of have some level of sophistication, right? Like there's this piano that's there, like this reminder of a mom that used to, you know, uh, be uh, part of the cerebral philharmonic, right? And that that remnant is gone, but there's still the ghost of the the um, of her ability, right? The ghost that she kind of has has left there. And uh, we wanted to play around with that. And it, 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 it does provide for a very kind of haunting, uh, a very kind of haunted um, uh, quality, um, kind of reviving the presence of the mom, even though she's deceased, just through these, these oral kind of uh, elements. And that haunting nature also plays into um, one of your big story points is that Mona... For her class, a final project she has to do in school, she has to write a story. And she writes a story mm. about the Golden Valley and the mythology of it that takes place at the famous White Fortress, um, which actually overlooks Sarajevo. Um, and that story is just so enchanting, but it is very haunting. So your imagery comes into play there in that third act. The piano comes into play. It all becomes, that's where your real fantasy and fairy tale really takes heart. And so well done. You know, what led you to want to bring in that, that tale of the Golden Valley to have Mona do that and then do show that as a basically as a voiceover with her reading it to the class. Um, just this sort of kind of naive, um, this unknown. She's she's naive as to like what transpired and what happened to him, and the only way to make sense of it was to construct a story that at least gives her some sense of closure. Um, even if it's not completely closed, it helps her kind of move on and contextualize what what, what transpired. 
Um, and there's this hope at the end as well, mm-hmm. like of of the return, right? Like this idea that even though she's being forced to kind of uh, uh, move abroad by her parents um, uh, to study, um, that like one day the, the youth, the young people may return. And that's sort of where where I kind of wanted to kind of leave the, the piece where it, it, while the story is very dark in many ways, like there's this subtle hope of this return, right? Of, of, of returning and being there, being present, rekindling or refining this love. And regardless of what may have happened to him, which I don't want to spoil it. Yes, we um, don't want to spoil it. No spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it, it, that, that's that's sort of where I was, uh, where where why I decided to um, have that ending. Um, it's not a place that's very open or kind to young people. It, it it's an extremely corrupt space, and it's really hard to you know find a job after you graduate. Um, so there's like a major like youth unemployment rate, like 40, 45, 40, 45%, which all kind of makes things extremely complicated to like stay there. Uh, so if you do stay there, you're either part of the sort of the elite um, or you got your job through some kind of scheming or <laughs> or you're just working in the gray market or, or the black market. And then a lot of the young people who are like well-educated, they just leave. There's like some colleges or some universities have direct connections to like, you know, colleges in France and in, in Austria and Germany. So people just graduate and then they get a job elsewhere. And essentially just, they, they, they leave through this kind of educational opportunities. Um, and it's a very small country, right? It's like, it, it's, it's shrinking rapidly. Mm-hmm. Like 55,000 people leave each year. Oh. Um, it, I don't think it even has 3 million at this point. I oh, think wow. they're, kind of fudging the numbers to make it seem like there's more than 3 million, but it's under 3 million. Wow. You know, what was the most challenging aspect of bringing the White Fortress to life? Once you finally got financing, <laughs> what, because that's always the biggest challenge, what was, what was the logistical challenge like to bring this to life? Uh, the casting was, was the trickiest in many ways. Um, Sarajevo is very uh, kind of an amazing... Sarajevo and Bosnia as a place to film are just kind of spectacular in, in, in what they can offer. Like any kind of uh, geography you can think of is is there, right? Whether it's Mediterranean, whether it's Alpine, whether it's like, you know, fields, mountains, uh, arid, humid, it doesn't matter, right? You can within like a 200 kilometer drive, you can kind of find it. But the issue and and the crews that, that are there are pretty amazing because they crew on so many other films. So like in a given year, these 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 crews would have experience on like you know 20 shows. Right? Wow! Uh, because you have Italian films shooting there, you have like French films shooting there, you have Canadian films shooting there, right? You have like Croatian films. So you have, you you're co- there are constantly opportunities for for the the very small number of crew members that are there maybe like 200 people or so to constantly learn on many of these projects so that part is pretty amazing but the issue is always been when you have a co-production between Canada in this case and Bosnia and Herzegovina casting so 
we were tied. We were kind of um, tied to using only Canadian and Bosnian cast. Mm-hmm. But if you're casting from the region, because Croatian actors and Serbian actors, they all speak the same language, right? So it's Serbo-Croatian and Bosnian actors. So if you're casting from Zagreb, Belgrade, and Sarajevo, which is how everybody casts, we couldn't really do that. We could only <laughs> cast one actor that was not from Bosnia or Canada, and that actor was Pavla, so our lead, who was, who was Belgrade-based, so he was in Serbia. So he was, as soon as, soon as he was cast as a Serbian actor... Um, we, 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 uh, pretty late in the game, uh, we were told by the co-production office, like some of the people we get cast had to be recast because they don't have the necessary citizenship. Oh my God. And that was like, so that was like last minute kind of like trying to figure out the, for a few roles, like we went in the, with the non-actors, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, or just like recasting some of these older roles. Um, so I think she did a phenomenal job, Tara, uh, who played the the, the, the girl that's um, been mistreated. Oh, Melina. Um, yeah, she played she Melina. Was, yeah. That's right, Minela. She was she was she was last minute sort of re rejigging. She was somebody who showed up and was like a, a runner up in the role, and uh, in the end, we couldn't go with the person that uh, was given the role because of the citizenship issues. And um, uh, we used her. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was like you know, better this way. But it just, it just kind, kind of messed up our our um, our few days leading up to the production itself because oh, wow. of this, these kind of um, uh, these 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 casting uh, problems tied to this interpretation of the treaty, right? Like, whenever you have a co-production treaty between countries, mm-hmm. it's all, all about it is, like, interpretation, right? Like, lawyers interpreting what you <laughs> can and cannot do. And there goes part and of your budget. this is the first time that we had that, right? This is the first time they had, like, a Bosnian, uh, a Bosnian-Canadian co-production ever. Like, they wow. never done one before. So, like, there's a lot of people learning on both sides yeah. of the continent, or rather the world. Um, so you, 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 you were kind of bound to these, to these rules. Um, and the, the, the treaty is complicated because it's based on a a treaty signed in 1988 between former Yugoslavia (laughs) and Canada. So that's like, you have to like wrap your head around that part. And all the, all the other countries that are now sort of separate countries, the seven countries are separate countries, mm-hmm. they still are bound by that document oh and the interpretation God. of that document whenever they work with Canada. So, fine. So, start with part of your budget goes to lawyers just to get you through the contract so that you can hire and get some actors. Oh, oh my. Yeah, you have a You have a lot of stuff going through, yeah, like admin, wow. administrative kind of costs, logistical costs. Wow. And, um, legal you have yeah a lot of a lot of a lot of it is like legality. That's how it works when you work in Europe, right? It's it's a lot of you can't really make a film without the help of another country usually, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if it's just such a small country like Bosnia, it's really hard to make an international film without a co-production with somebody sure. else. Sure. Wow. Well, whatever pains that it took you to make the White Fortress, it was well worth it. Because it is such a beautiful and heartfelt film, Igor. Thank you so much. Oh, 
Igor, yeah, appreciate it. this has been so lovely getting to speak with you today about White Fortress. And everybody can see it. It's out. Um, so there's no excuse for them not to see it. Are you working on another film now? Um, yeah, I'm working on a script. It's sort of a, it's a paranormal thriller about a relationship that goes wrong after an incident that can be explained. And um, I, made a, I made a short film called The Archivist which is a dystopian musical um, that uh, a short film that came about a year and a half ago and that being expanded into like a longer piece. So there's, yeah, there's a few things. Ooh. Which one, which one will be done first? I have no idea. Yet. Who knows? <laughs> well, whenever well, money first, I guess. <laughs> well, whenever you get one done, <laughs> I definitely want to see it, Igor. I want to see more from you. Thank you so much. Oh, Igor, thank you so much. And, when you get your next project ready, I hope you'll come back on the show. Thank you once again, and thanks to your listeners, and uh, hope you guys have a good week. And you have a lovely time in Maui. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Igor. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye. And that was Igor Droljaka, uh, writer and director of The White Fortress. And now... I'm so tickled to bring this person live here. Are you, uh, Dan, Hi, Debbie. How are you? I am fine, Mr. Dan Mirvish. How are you? Doing great. Thanks. I love 18 and a half so much. <laughs> That's so sweet of you to say. Thank you. You know, it's a tape in a bag in a bag in, in a box in a bag in a purse. <laughs> and Wonder right. Bread is poison. Hey, that's all we need to know. Um, yeah. This is so creative. I, the, what you brought to this uh, with you and, and your partner in crime, Daniel Moya, um, this is so original. You take a, a true historical event and you put a spin on it that I haven't seen anywhere. Never even thought yeah, of something no, I, like this. <laughs> you know, what led right. you? And to see the parallels to the world that we're currently in with mm -hmm. what was happening 50 years ago, not too much has changed, I hate to say. <laughs> right. Um, well, I, I found this amazing location at the uh, Silver Sands Motel, which is in real life is on the tip of Long Island. And uh, my friend Terry uh, owned it, but it, it was built by his grandparents in the 50s and 60s. And so he said, well, we use it for a lot of fashion shoots when it's not being used as a motel and it's closed in the winter. So if you come up with a feature, we can, we can shoot it then. Um, and everyone can stay here. And I was like, oh, well, all righty then. Let's make a Watergate film. <laughs> you know, Watergate film is not typically what comes to pops in the head of most um, <laughs> filmmakers to begin with. Why? Yeah. Well, why a Watergate film, Dan? Well, because the day I was having this conversation was the same day that uh, Terry came with me to visit Jules Pfeiffer, who, who wrote my last film, Bernard mm -hmm. and Huey. And Jules lives on the Shelter Island out on the tip of Long Island. And this was the day after the presidential election in November 2016. 
And so Pfeiffer, who won a Pulitzer Prize for um, uh, political cartooning, mainly of Nixon and Watergate. So we were talking about comparisons between, you know, the current era and, and who had just been elected and and life in, in the Nixon administration and, and Watergate and impeachment and things like that. So we kind of had it on the brain. And, and it's an area that I've thought about for a long time. I worked in Washington. I was a Senate speechwriter. I've, I've written a little bit about Watergate before. So for me, it was just an area I, I really wanted to dive into. Well, and you take this to the next level for, you know, the younger generation who don't understand what 18 and a half minutes are. Richard Nixon was president. Some of you may not even realize that, but yes, Richard Nixon was president. <laughs> and during Watergate, the Watergate Hotel break-in, what came out of it was there were tapes. Nixon recorded everything, recorded everything. Um, but 18 and a half minutes were missing in these tapes. Mm-hmm. Um is Secretary Rosemary Wood got blamed. Um, she took the fall, no matter who it was who erased it. But you then take the, that basic factual premise and you put a spin on it that a transcriber in the government gets handed a tape to transcribe and it happens to be a tape, the 18 and a half minutes, but more than the 18 and a half minutes... It was secretly recorded in a building that nobody understands that everything is recorded in a room in that building. And Nixon and Alexander Haig were in there listening to the 18 and a half minutes <laughs> and talking and doing commentary about everything under the sun. So this 18 and a half minutes has the original missing 18 and a half minutes plus all of this overtalk by Nixon and Haig. And it is yeah, and hilarious. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and that was kind of based on the research that we did. We found out that there really are tapes of tapes mm-hmm. um, because there were about four or five different uh, rooms in the Nixon White House that had these voice-activated taping systems, that there really are tapes of Nixon listening to tapes and kind of fumbling with the buttons. And once we realized that that was a real plausible thing, then it, it then that sort of gave us a, a, a jumping off point for the story and the, and the character. Yeah. And people have and for the younger generation, again, you have to realize <laughs> these these were the days of real to real tape. Um, so, you know, you've got footage and footage and footage and they're on spools and. It's not even a cassette you can pop in somewhere. No, you've got to thread these in a player. And this is part of the humor that really comes out in 18 and a half is that you have this wonderful transcriber who, you know, she now has this in her possession. She goes to meet with a reporter from the Washington Post. And he wants the to Times. T- the, Times. the Times. Sorry, the Times. Yes, because <laughs> the Post was breaking everything. So yes, the Times. Yeah. Um, and he wants the tape. She won't give him the tape. That's her tape. But he can listen to the tape. Then it comes. Well, we got to go somewhere, and we've got to uh, listen. Who has a recorder? Oh, I have one in my trunk. Yes. Well, Mr. Reporter had a broken one in his trunk. Uh, as they're hunkering down at this lovely little motel, 
Um, then they have to embark to find another record, another reel-to-reel player to listen to this. And insanity ensues. You've got hippies, and they're <laughs> protesting, and they're acting like they're totally strung out on LSD. Um, Leary must have been there at some point, passing things around. <laughs> um, Wonder Bread is poison. ITT, which owned Wonder Bread, they are at the root of all evil. Then you have this swingers couple, Samuel and Lena, play it brilliantly, Vondi Curtis Hall and Catherine Curtin. And they want our, our, our lovely, our intrepid reporter and transcriber, who are now undercover as a married couple, um, named Archie and Ruth. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you throw comedy in there as our reporter Paul picks the name of Archie because he likes the comic. Uh, it's all these little things. And, uh, you know, we've got Connie and Paul, and they borrow the the reel-to-reel player that Samuel and Lena have. Um, but then things are not what they seem, and we just explode with insanity. And it is delicious, Dan. It is delicious. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Uh, you know, it, it just, I've watched it twice now. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Well, you have so much happening here. Let's dissect this. Because, number one, we have to look at your casting. Willa Fitzgerald is Connie. Mm -hmm. John Majara is Paul. Vondi Curtis Hall. Catherine Curtin. Another hilarious performance from Richard Kind as the proprietor of the motel. And, of course, he wears a pirate patch over one eye, which just adds even more humor and then you have voice casting, which is Ted Ramey is Alexander Haig, John Cryer, two and a half men, John Cryer as Bob Halderman, and Bruce Campbell as Nixon. How did you assemble this phenomenal cast? Because this is really an incredible cast, Dan. Well, well thanks. Yeah, <laughs> they, uh, they were all fantastic and, and wonderful to work with, too. Um, Richard Kind is someone that was in my last film, yep. and so I knew I knew him, and I thought if the schedule was right, we could get him, and and we we did. Um, uh, Willa Fitzgerald was recommended by um, uh, first her agent, and but then also by a filmmaker friend of mine, Lucky McKee, who'd worked with her, and she was fantastic. John Magara was recommended by Kelly Reichardt. Uh, from, oh wow! Because they had just done First Cow, mm-hmm. and uh, and I I trust her. Yes. Know? So, um, and then um, uh, Vondi Curtis Hall and Kathy Curtin only got cast about thirty six hours before they showed up. Oh, that was God. the real surprise. Um, but they were fantastic, as, as you as you can see, and had great chemistry between them. Um, and then, uh, let's see, Sullivan Jones, who plays Barry the Hippie, he was, uh, he had just been on Slave Play on Broadway, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but he was great. And, and then the, the voiceover cast, Bruce Campbell, someone I tried to work with before, but this was the first time that the schedules kind of aligned and it turned out he was a big fan of the, of the Senate Watergate hearings when he was a teenager. He would watch them religiously when he was 14. So um, so he's someone that had been thinking about Nixon and Watergate a fair bit and had actually done some comedy bits with his buddy, Ted Ramey, where Ted actually played Nixon and Bruce played Haldeman. 
Um, so they were both familiar with it. And then John Cryer, someone that I, I've known for like 30 years or 25 years, and uh, but we had never worked together. So it was, but it was an easy commitment time-wise for those guys because it didn't take that long to record, but it, but it is a pretty substantial part of the movie. Oh, absolutely, because... One, this is one of the great things, and let me jump to sound design here, because you have the most conversational sound with everybody stepping on, stepping on, stepping on each other like normal conversations. Uh, <laughs> with the tape, especially in the third act, the tape is continually playing while madness and mayhem ensue. It's playing in the background, and it doesn't stop. It keeps playing. But your sound design, and I know you you were using Altman's idea of lobs on each individual actor. Mm -hmm. That right, is right. the perfect technique for this film. You don't have to worry about yeah. coverage. You've got everybody clean sound. You can edit as needed. You can bring volume up, down. It is fabulous. Fabulous. And then you have the constant... Mm -hmm. Of in the third act of the 18 and a half minute tape with the tape on top of it playing and it's just brilliant brilliant so we hear this cacophony of everything but it's all very distinct and discernible and it's not often you get that thanks well it took a while to work on it and uh but, you know, we, we pulled it off. And, and, and the irony is that, you know, we, we had started shooting in March of 2020, March 3rd. And, you know, what could go wrong in March oh, of 2020? No. So, we, <laughs> so we got about 11 days into the shoot and, uh, and then had to shut down for the pandemic. And then a couple months into the first lockdown, we realized, you know what, we can record all the voice actors on Zoom. And uh, because that, you know, they were all spread around the country mm -hmm. in different places. Um, but every but actors were sitting around with nothing to do. So this was a chance for for them. And they all had pretty decent microphones. So we were able to kind of supplement the Zoom. But um, but it was a really nice way for all of us to kind of be creative and be be working on that part of the film. And, you know, when everyone else was sitting at home baking sourdough, which, of course, I was doing, too. And I was sitting at home doing phone interviews around the globe. <laughs> exactly. I was doing an average of like seven phone interviews a day. Wow. Because wow. everybody was sitting at home. So, okay, yeah, I, had exactly. a, I had a captive audience. And since I won't mm -hmm. use Zoom, I always use the phone. So, I'm, so there's you know, less chance of any kind of technical glitches, no security issues on the back end, on a hard drive. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, you were baking sourdough, and <laughs> I was doing interviews. The spot was closed. The backstage was closed. Yeah. Well, we were both out of luck. <laughs> exactly. But I was I was editing the film during that time, too. So, so see? Because um, when, when things shut down, I, I grabbed the hard drive. I was about the only person on the crew from L.A., so I grabbed the hard drive, came back to Culver City, where I live, and we started... Um, you know, I started editing and then we did the sound. And then six months later, I was able to go back um, right when the Screen Actors Guild and Directors Guild uh, protocols were, were in place. Mm -hmm. And we could we were one of the first films to be back shooting live. And of course, I brought my sourdough starter with me and started baking for the cast and crew. <laughs> oh, my God, Dan, uh, a baker and a filmmaker. What can we say? Yeah.
But, <laughs> but you know, ver- stand out here. Anybody, when people watch the film, number one, the visual grammar is perfection. This is period perfect. Anamorphic. It has that, not just anamorphic, but the lighting. And in the motel where you were shooting, those cedar wall, the, the pine panels on the walls just play with the lighting. You've got a lot of ambient lighting in there, the, and the lampshades really create a nice kind of, uh, they give you a throw and some shadow. Uh, playing off that pine tone of the walls, which is so East mm-hmm. Coast. Um, and it looks fabulous. But then you you really play with your focal length, with close-ups, with zooms, with pacing, um, with some pans, some dolly shots. You really... Mas- you and your cinematographer, Ellie Schneider, you masterfully play with the tools in the toolbox to give us a, a very visceral 1970s piece. We feel like we're there. We, we, yeah, thank you. Well, that was, that was one of the rules I gave for everyone on the cast and crew was that, you know, let's only use the creative tools that would have been available in 1974. So no, no drone shots, no, no steady cams because those are 76, but even on the music, all the instruments were from the sixties and seventies. So uh, yeah. And all, in all the categories, we tried to do that. Well, and I have to say your production designer, I don't know how much production design she had, Monica Dabrowski had to do inside the motels or if it just came down to set dress, but Again, it was period perfect. Costume Sarah Cogan's costume design, absolutely yeah. outstanding. I mean, boy, oh <laughs> Thank boy. You. Thanks. That looked like she walked into somebody's closet in the 1970s and just took it off the hanger. Well, it, it close. She collects 1970s patterns, paper <gasps> patterns, and uh... then hand sews each individual costume from those patterns and and works with the actors and with me in, uh, in, you know, in crafting them. So they're all original. Wow. Well, and then this, you know, is kudos to her because the fabrications that she used, the fabrics, mm-hmm. all have yeah. the print, finds... the prints and the designs of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, she finds this stuff and somehow, I don't know where she finds it, but... She does and puts it all together. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we were looking at some double knit there, some of the old style double knit. <laughs> um, but, you know, the start of, uh, you know, I, I recognize that. And, of course, the print on that she used, the, the checkerboard windowpane print on uh, John, on Paul's suit was hilarious. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was right out of the 70s. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, on every level, you feel transported that you are there. This was one of those Walter Cronkite, you are there moments watching this film. <laughs> um, you know, you really, really feel like you, you do, you immerse us in this, Dan. You know, and a big part of this Thank is you. also the wonderful compositions from Luis Guerra. And I, by the way, I love my flexi disc. 
<laughs> I love Dan was very nice. Everybody has already heard me talk about my flexi disc after you had it left at my door for me. And for people that don't know what flexi discs are. Now, these are the things I remember when they would be on the back of cereal boxes and in magazines in the 60s and 70s. Just the coolest things. And they look like plastic. And they're, they're un, kind of unbreakable. Of course, I had two brothers that did figure out how to break them. But we won't go there. Um, but tell, can you tell everybody what the flexi disc is? So it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we wanted originally to do like a full vinyl uh, release of our soundtrack because it's all original music. It's that great. We, uh, did all the music. I wrote some of the lyrics and, and uh, we had a great um, local Brazilian singer who lives in LA uh, named Caro Pierotto did the singing, but there's a year long backlog on vinyl. So we, we found a, um, a pressing plant in the Czech Republic that during the Cold War would smuggle in rock and roll from the West and print these plastic flexible discs onto medical x-rays <laughs> and, and then make records out of them. Well, this plant is still in existence, and, and so they were able to do these uh, seven-inch flexi discs with, uh, with just a couple of the songs, uh, Brasilia Bella and uh, the Wonder Bread song. So, um, so we got those made. Well, you got to have a Wonder Bread song. And that was a good one to include. <laughs> you, that was a good one to include. You know, how challenging was the edit on this one? Because, number one, comedy, as you know, you've got to be able to hit those beats. Comedy is, yeah. very, is very difficult to edit. But then you throw in the thriller aspect. And that has mm -hmm. its own peaks and valleys that are oftentimes mm -hmm. contra to the comedic beats. So I'm curious how challenging the edit was for you to find the pacing of this. Well, you know, it was, I had time on my hands, so I spent a lot of time editing and, um, and we just, uh, you know, we had great footage, but we only had so much footage because it's an indie film. So we were shooting fast, but I think because, I edit and I know what I'm going to edit and how I'm going to edit each scene differently. That, that allows us to be a bit more efficient on the set. So I know what scenes are going to be played out in long, you know, one shots and in oneers, but I know other scenes are, are going to be edited completely different ways, like the dinner scene mm -hmm. and, um, and the monologue and things like that from the middle of the movie. So, you know, so we just uh, worked with the way with what we had, but we, but we shot it to be edited in those ways. Mm -hmm. Do you find with as many films as you've done, and with as many films as you have looked at um, through Slam Dance, uh, being mm -hmm. being one of the founders and still hanging in there after all these many years, um, <laughs> right. you know, do you find that when you're directing, are you editing in your mind's eye as you're directing? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, that that's the thing about when you're making a film about 90 percent of the people on the cast and crew are all there to get the image into the camera, the actors, the, the cinematographer, lighting, hair, all that. But there's really only just the director and maybe the script supervisor are there to think about how you're going to edit. So do you need insert shots? Do you need cutaways? Do you need coverage? And what kind of coverage do you need? So 
Yeah, the more you can think about the editing before you start shooting, the the the, the faster and more efficient, and you can you can be with it. Mm-hmm. I I just I'm amazed at when it ended. I was actually disappointed it was over. <laughs> I was ready for this story to keep going. Oh. Did uh, it's, it's, well, we 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 may still. There's some talk of turning it into a TV series or a play or or something else. So who knows what may happen next? This would, I, I certainly don't know. This would be <laughs> hilarious as a series. You could do a lot with this as a Thank series. You. you. You could you know you could even cover and do it comedically leading up to the 18 and a half minute mm-hmm. disappearance. Um, you could actually go behind the scenes with Nixon and Haig sitting there chatting and complaining mm-hmm. about everything in the world and everyone and disclosing yeah. all kinds of secrets. And that's one of the great things that you do here is you really do incorporate fact. And then you also, without coming right out and saying it, you also drop enough Easter eggs and references to players like Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, the, and you know, anybody that knows anything about the Weatherman Underground group, which mm-hmm. people may have when they saw the Robert Redford movie a few years ago uh, that dealt with that particular group and issue. You know, that was a very real thing. And they actually were involved with the bomb that exploded at the ITT building, which not only gave money to the Nixon's, uh, to the to the Republican National Convention, to the campaign, but they did own Continental Baking, which made Wonder Bread. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, all these, you, you take these pieces, these facts, and you weave them in so well, as almost like some a lot of them just like little Easter eggs. You know, how long did it take you and and Daniel to put this script together with all of these little gems in it? It it, it took a while. I mean, it, it it took about a year and a half or two years to work on the script um, because we knew that. We had it had to be good. Like uh, you, we couldn't couldn't do a halfway version of this. Like it was either all or nothing. And 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 again, every, everything was so tightly constructed and 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 woven together that we really had to um, make sure it was all on the page before handing it over to the actors to to play with. Um, but then uh, you know, but honestly, that we had some time to tweak the script for the last four days of shooting during that six-month pandemic period, mm-hmm. you know, which is creatively was a luxury for us because we could look at the footage that we'd already shot and then look at the scenes that we hadn't shot yet and go, okay, we need this. We need to put in a little bit more of this or a little bit less of that. And so that, that in a weird way, that kind of helped us. Now, I've got to, you know, particularly with the third act, when we have a balls-to-the-wall action mm-hmm. scene, man <laughs> on man, woman on man, woman on woman, it's just, it's insanity insanity and it's great and it's shot so well um but i'm curious was there any room for improv here in this film or was it pretty much everyone stuck to the script well 
Um, I, you, as you alluded earlier or mentioned earlier, you know, we had every, we did the Altman style of everyone kind of talking over each other and, and because they were individually mic'd. And what that does is it, it, it lets you, it lets the actors stick to the script, but sort of add the kind of the small scale improv, the ums and the ahs and repeating lines. And, um, and that gives it a much more lived in feel mm-hmm. while still sticking to what's on the page. Um, there's, there's only one scene that's, that's a hundred percent improvised. It's a very short one, but it's very funny. It's when Barry is walking up to the cottage, Barry, the hippie mm-hmm. with, um, with, uh, Paul and they're walking up to the cottage and he's talking more about, about how, um, other species don't use bread for capitalism like we do. And that was something that just Sullivan Jones kind of came up by. You, we had been talking about all this stuff, and he had done the other monologue, which was all scripted. But um, but he came up with that just off the top of his head in one take, and we're like, oh, my God, that, we're, we can't beat that. That's hysterical. Well, yeah, because so, it's a great um, double entendre, you know, bread, money being bread, mm-hmm. hippie world. I mean, it just mm-hmm. it fits so beautifully. Um, yeah. and I, and I loved watching, you know, as he's talking, you know, John in character is Paul, um, his response, you know, his body language and his response <laughs> is just so flummoxed. Um, yeah. <laughs> and everything about that John brings to Paul, it's very yeah. flummoxed, which I, which just added a layer of humor because here you've got Connie, who's being so diligent as a transcriber and is so professional and competent in her work. And yet it's like she's not questioning kind of the buffoonery and semi-incompetence of this reporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just thought that was that was so funny. Yeah, that, and you know, and and again, watching the movie a second time, which I hope everybody watches it at least two or three times, um, you realize what layers are in there with all the different performances, and um, you know, and who's who's not who they are when we think they are. Yeah, and it's 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 a testament to all the actors that they they're able to pull off all the all the different layers. Well, and you get suspicious of one or two, and you wonder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um. But the main one, and I think you really throw us a MacGuffin here, is um, is Richard Kind's character. He's, yeah. you know, yeah. he. You see a guy with a pirate patch over his eye, and immediately you think, okay, something shady is going on with this guy. Should we really be staying <laughs> at this motel? Uh, <laughs> especially when you have a no vacancy sign there, and it's the middle of winter, and everything right. is vacant. Um, so. You and it's Richard Kind. And it's Richard Kind. So right away when he's cast in something, because I just finished watching him. Actually, I watched 18 and a half um, after you sent me the link. And then I saw Richard in another film, Tank House, that okay. he's equally that just came out uh, on Friday. And he's equally oh, wow. as quirky and strange and... Okay, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? What the heck? Because he plays those so well. And then I rewatched. Yeah, he can really, he can do it all. Yeah, and then I rewatched Eighteen and a Half this weekend, <laughs> and after just, you know, seeing Richard again, and I'm like, God, you know, this is this is just 
It's amazing watching him. So you throw us for a loop with that as this film plays out. <laughs> but then you get layers and textures from Vondi Curtis Hall as Samuel. And Vondi, yeah. number oh, one, yeah. is one of the greatest champions of indie film there are, that, that there is. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. He loves indie film. Uh, huge, huge, huge supporter of Film Independent for many, many years. Yep, yeah, he's uh, on their board. Yeah. And uh, and Catherine Curtin, uh, her chemistry with Vondi is amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, absolutely, yeah. And watching the two of them play is is delicious. It is delicious yeah. because yeah, it's... they were so much fun, and and we didn't have time to rehearse any of those scenes. And and I talked to Vondi, and he said that was in some ways that that was a fun, really nice thing for them because they could really surprise each other as actors. So as actors, they were said it was really electric, not knowing what the other people were going to do next. And, <laughs> um, and and you see you see it in the performances. I it is, it is just. So real, so natural, so authentic, and so much fun, Dan. Um, I, I, I love this film. What can I say? I love this film. <laughs> and everybody gets to see it this Friday, Memorial Day weekend. You've got three days. Yes. And this is going to be in theaters in 50 markets. Exactly. Yeah, you can see, you can see Tom Cruise for at least one of those days and see our film the other two days. And um, then you expand. It, actually, it, o- it opens this Friday, May 27th, in, in just a couple markets. Right. In, in, uh, in L.A., at Lemley's, in New York, just announced this morning at IFC Center, uh, and a couple other places. And then the next week, June 3rd, that's when it opens uh, coast, coast to coast, coast. In, in about 50 markets. Oh, my God. This is just, I can't, this is the best, what was it, 88 minutes or something that this film is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it it is the you will have so much fun in this eighty eight minutes watching eighteen and a half. Um, oh, thanks so much. It really so now quickly before I, before I let you go, since of course we're over mm-hmm. time. I'm always over time. I never run on time with my show. <laughs> um, yeah, what's going on with Slam Dance? How are we looking for next year? Um, so far, optimistically, we think it's going to be live, but it's. It's really it's early to say. You know, we could be in the throes of of the monkeypox pandemic by next. Oh, I know. January. So I, who knows? Who knows? See, which is to say, see movies now while you can before the next weird thing happens. In yes, our world. the next weird thing that probably won't really be too weird a thing, but politics and power are going to make it a big thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Now, have you have you opened submissions yet for Slam Dance twenty twenty three? Uh, not yet. I don't think, I, I think that's probably a month or two away, but, um, but pretty soon. Yeah. So definitely okay. folks should submit. Cause I thought it was coming up. Uh, and they can, mm-hmm. and for slam dance, they can submit through film freeway. Yeah, exactly. Best place to submit. Um, but yeah. Dan, this has been too much fun. Too oh, much thank fun. You, Debbie. <laughs> I, 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 any film that has, you know, and oh, and the music, I have to say, your opening, the opening scoring. Um, yeah. For a big part of this film, the, musically, I felt like I was watching a Dean Martin, Matt Helm spy thriller. <laughs> 
the, that's the musicality that you, that really right. comes out. It was it played it especially opening immediately when the music started. Um, yeah, I thought it felt very Matt Helm. And yeah, yeah. I just on every level you captured this, but at the end of the day, it's a tape in a box and a bag in a purse. <laughs> exactly. You know, Dan. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I know you'll come back on the show thank again. Thank you, Debbie. Absolutely. I know. <laughs> you Mate. know where we're, we're in the neighborhood. Yeah, um, I know where you, you are. Thank you very much for having me on, Debbie. Oh, this has been a pure joy, Dan. I can't wait till we do it again, and I can't wait to see what you direct next. Thank you. I can't wait to figure out what that is either. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go have a wonderful day. Go grab a cup of coffee at the spot. All right, we'll do. <laughs> okay, thanks, Dan. All right, bye bye. Take care. And that was director Dan Mirovich talking about eighteen and a half in theaters, limited this Friday, expands next week, across fifty markets, and who knows, maybe more. It is a lot of fun. It's a dark comedic thriller. And again, if you haven't seen The White Fortress yet. A beautiful film. Well worth a watch. So that is all the time we have today and then some. We're not here next week because it's Memorial Day and Pam gets her holiday. She's nodding her head. Yes, there is no question. Memorial Day is is a federal holiday. But we're going to be back on June 6th and we're going to be talking with the filmmaker of Acid Test. The film is premiering in Dances with Films that is coming up uh, in a few weeks. And we're going to have Jason Loftus with us live talking about his animated documentary, Eternal Spring, which will also be uh, premiering at Dances with Films. So, until June 6th, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 